Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Throughout the course of our conversation, Pankaj Mishra took great pains to clarify that, unlike many other Ideas Roadshow guests, he wasn't a professional historian, but rather a writer. At first, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. After all, his book that made up the primary focal point of our discussion, From the Ruins of Empire, The Intellectuals Who Remade Asia, clearly resulted from considerable research on the role that many key, now often overlooked, historical figures played in the development of China, India, and other Asian countries, and the important lessons that their ideas can still teach us. But eventually I began to appreciate that what Pankaj really meant by highlighting his status as a writer was not that he wasn't engaging in historical reflection, or that his facts were suspect, but rather that his arguments sprung from unabashedly personal motivations. That, as an Indian who was raised in a dominantly Western intellectual tradition, his quest to discover other perspectives and other insights was a personal journey that he was convinced was worth sharing. And it most definitely is. There were three things that captivated me, three impressions that I had when I read From the Ruins of Empire. The first one was a sense of being confronted in a rather unpleasant and yet captivating way with my own ignorance. So here I am reading about uh, people uh, whom, quite frankly, I had never heard of, and I like to consider myself a reasonably cultivated individual. And here's this book who's talking about the influences, the profound influences of various Asian intellectuals. I had never heard of Liang Chichao before. Uh, I had never heard of Jamal al-Din al-Afghani before. Um, I had never heard, I had heard of Rabindranath Tagore, but maybe only the name, only seen here or there. Um, and the book was a, a real source of revelation positively to me, but it, it gave me a certain sense that I really uh, didn't know very much at all uh, about any of this which was, uh, as I said, both stimulating and humbling. So that was reaction number one that I had. Reaction number two that I had was, um, how should I put this? Well, before I had, I wasn't terribly judgmental about this whole idea of colonialism. I hadn't thought about it very much, to be completely honest with you. I thought, well, there's good and there's bad. Uh, some level of infrastructure, perhaps, that was laid down. And, and yes, all sorts of oral transgressions, but I knew little bits and pieces here and there. I came away from your book with a sense that uh, this is just an egregious moral wrong, that, that, that it was just a horrific sense of uh, moral depravity, the inhumanity of man versus man, and, and uh, there was no level of ambiguity whatsoever for me. I came away thinking this is a, this is a really crappy thing that human beings have done to one another, um, and very, very strong sense of... Uh, uh, of the horrors of, of colonialism. That was, that was my second strong sense. My third sense was a certain queasiness 
about some of the conclusions and where we can go from there and what this all means. And I'll get back to that later on, some of the questions that I have to you. But I'd like to start off by asking you, um, first of all, was this a common reaction uh, in terms of this, this level of, gosh, I should have known more about this, or this is, this is really embarrassing that I really don't know anything about this. Did, did other people say this? Am I the only person in the entire world to read this book and gave away what that says? Or is that a, was that I, a common actually, reaction? Actually, a lot of people said that. And uh, the, the, this, is, this was a very common reaction. And the important thing here is that you know, even the author of this book uh, knew very little about these characters before he started out. So if you'd asked me six, seven years ago who Liang Chicha was, China's foremost modern intellectual, I would have said, no idea. Uh, I wouldn't have had any name recognition. So this is a measure of ignorance, um, even you know, someone who grew up in India, in the part of the world we call Asia today, has about an immediate neighbor about the culture and history of China, one of the most important countries today. Mm -hmm. But this is, you know, um, a manifestation of how, you know, our knowledge systems are structured, the way we think of ourselves and the world, the way we look at the world, which is a way and almost entirely framed by Western social sciences, the way in which history is taught, has been taught, in academy for the last 150 years or so, so that whether you're in India or whether you're in Toronto or in France or in London, um, there is a certain kind of history you grow up reading. And that history excludes, you know, so many, so many different aspects of our common experience, um, certainly of the last 150 years or so, because they're all kind of nationalist histories. Right. If they're not nationalist histories, then they tend to be imperial histories and imperial histories exclude even, even more than nationalist histories. So I think that ignorance is fairly common. And actually, one of the reasons why I wrote that book was to address very specifically that ignorance. That was one of the impulses uh, behind that book. The other impulse was, of course, to excavate certain ideas, certain ways of life, certain worldviews that we have uh, tended to neglect, if not suppress or ignore altogether. Um, to Such as? well to look at what say a Chinese intellectual in the late 19th century or early 20th century for that matter what were they thinking when they confronted this enormous challenge of Western imperialism of Western capitalism the kind of challenge that was really existential and mind you I'm not a historian I look at my book is really about individuals at particular stages in history looking at the world around them, seeing existential challenges everywhere, you know, so very much characters in an existential situation. Right. That is really what the book is about, you know, how can we hold on to the society we've had, to the society that has been around, whose traditions, particular traditions, particularly literary traditions, cultural traditions have been around for a very long time. Right. How can we hold on to those and also live with dignity in the wider world? So imperialism becomes a very important factor for all of these people because what it is asking them to do, whether you're in India, which is physically occupied by British imperialists, or whether you're in China or in the Ottoman Empire, which is not physically occupied, but nevertheless feels this enormous pressure sure, sure. From, from the West, that uh, you know, you'll have to radically transform your societies, completely overhaul 
them in order to become strong, strong enough to survive in the wider world. Um, otherwise, you know, your, uh, your, your lands, your territories, your cultures will be even more dominated by the West than they are already are. So that really is a challenge that I want to describe in this book. Right. Uh, how did people respond to it? What, what, what did they say in the first instance? And, you know, the book is almost entirely about the first generation of um, Chinese, Indian, Turks, um, Iranian, or Egyptians. Yeah, but you draw links. You draw I links do, absolutely, China. because they, they, they looked at each other. They were uh, not only looking at the West, but they were also looking at other right. countries, other societies. They were looking at Japan, most importantly. Right. So it is that particular world of cosmopolitan exchanges and uh, travels and journeys um, across Asia, even into Europe, into America. How also the West, we've become so accustomed to the West looking at non-Western societies. Um, and really, we've had no idea of how people from non-Western societies have looked at the West right. over the last 150, 200 years. So that was another. So the sense uh, of turning the mirror the other, in the other direction. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so there's also related to this, there's a sense of, of what it means to be Asian, what it means to be Eastern, what these Eastern values are, if one can even say that. that that's, that's a real theme for me that I'm grappling with. I mm -hmm. talked to you a little bit about that before. And, um, and that, that's going to be, I, I think, one of the, one of the themes that, I, that I'm going to need help with, to right, get, right. Get, get sorted out with you. Um, so you, you start at the beginning of From the Ruins of Empire. You talk about the fact that these, these major intellectuals, these major thinkers are responding to the West or thinking about responding to the West in three separate ways. There's this sense of saying we have to hide triumphantly or rather uh, revert back to our values and have our values be, be ascendant. And this is manifested in things like perhaps pan-Islamicism and so forth. This, this sense that our, it's our, our set of values which is going to be triumphant and we shouldn't mm -hmm. give in to Western thinking whatsoever. There's a certain sense among some other groups of people that, well, we should tweak some things here and there. We should adopt some things from the West and we should keep our own sets of values. Uh, and then there's a third response, which is the sense of almost overhaul, entire overhaul of, of the way we're about to do things that you see in, in, in people like Mao later on and so forth. Um, it seems to me that, um, I, I guess what I'm struggling with is this notion of, of, of a pan-Asian response being just that, being a response. I'm looking at something being done in opposition to the West. So mm -hmm. rather than looking at, well, there are, there are these things known as Asian values, there are these things known as uh, a certain set of characteristics that are in common amongst a, a, a wider group of people, that, that the entire response is almost always a, is a defensive response. It's a, it's a response given in opposition to the West. Now, of course, historically, there were very good reasons for that. But in some ways, I'm wondering if that doesn't cloud what it means to, to actually have well, these yeah, values. Well, yeah, no, I think it's a very important question. One of the things, one of the very important things here is to not essentialize. So when one talks about, or when someone like Tagore, for instance, to take a very specific example, is talking about uh, the values of uh, the East or the values of Asia, or the spirituality of Asia, right. one has to look at that as a very pragmatic invoc invocation of certain values which Tagore thinks are not, are being neglected in the Western tradition. 
So he credits the East with those particular values and say, these are also important. This is what we have embodied all these, all these, all these centuries. And that for these values to be forsaken, for these values to be abandoned in the rush to embrace modernity, now that would be a tragedy. So these invocations of Asian values, of Pan-Asianisms, these are all happening in very particular historical context. Right. And they're very much contingent upon the degree of threat that most people who are talking about these things feel in their particular historical moment. So as you say, it's very important to really see this in confrontation, these invocations in, in, in the context of this really very serious challenge by the West. And this is not just a political challenge, I keep insisting throughout the book, it's not a political challenge, it's not just a military challenge, it's not just an economic challenge, it's an existential challenge. It's a spiritual challenge because the particular model of society, the particular idea of the individual that Western modernity is proposing, and mind you, these ideas are quite new within the West itself at mm -hmm. that point. Exactly. Was, these really are, uh, these pose a very radical challenge to the way a lot of people in places like China have conceptualized themselves, have looked at their own place in the world. So this is something really very, very new, this whole idea that, for instance, you take just one example that, yeah. you know, that there is something called progress in, world, in, in, in human affairs, that we are heading towards one, towards one particular place, that all of history is, is, is you know, taking us to that particular place and all, all that we do is, is getting there. Right basically a Christian idea, predestination, which has been adopted by various, which has been adapted rather to various secular ideologies in the 19th century, whether it's uh, you know, free trade or whether little variants of communism, you know, right. they keep incarnating this, this particular notion right. and uh, various ways in which we can reach this particular destination. And the destination really is that the world should be made over in the image of Europe. You know whether it's the, uh, the, the the sort of communists uh, undertaking that project, or whether it's the British imperialists in the 19th century, is basically this idea that the rest of the world has to resemble a small part of Western Europe. And that's what we are looking at—a small minority within Western Europe—and then, of course, later the United States joins that joins that picture. So, if you look at people in Asia in the late 19th century, in or in the early 20th century. This is what they're responding to, that this is uh, a, a universalizing, a universalism emanating from small part of the world, which is Western Europe, and generalizing itself around the world, a fully developed uh, you know, sets of ideas and ideologies, and basically asking people really to uproot themselves, to overhaul their own traditions, to renovate themselves you know, completely radically in order to survive in this world that the West is making. So this is really, you know, how the question has to be posed. And inevitably, so much of what is said and written at that point will be in response sure. to the West. By definition. Really. By definition. It has to be. Absolutely. And, and one of the things you point out, actually, uh, as, as you're getting to this view of history and this, this Western sense of divinely chosen or, or the single-handed uh, torchbearers of progress or however one wants to put it. You specifically mentioned people like Hegel and Marx who are actually addressing occasionally, again something I didn't know, but perhaps I, clearly I haven't read those uh, texts as well as I should have, 
but specifically mentioning India and China and, and pointing out that, wow, this is, this is just not the way to do things and that this is why they're outside of history or they should be somehow ignored or, or I mean, it, it's, it's not even applied. In some instances, it's, it's extremely explicit, in fact. Um, but again, so I, I'm, uh, I appreciate the fact that this is necessarily a response to the circumstances that were there. It's necessary a response to not only the economic factors, not only the political factors, but also this, this sense of, as you say, this sense of progress. Um, and yet there's this little voice in my head that's saying, well, let's try to parse things a little bit. Because after all, there are people in the West, there are people in Cincinnati, there are people in uh, Birmingham that are having trouble adapting to moder modernity. Absolutely. I mean, there are yeah. th this notion of how we, how we adapt to, to the world as it is changing yeah. certainly affects... Uh, all sorts of people in all sorts of different societies. So it seems to me you've got, you've got this legacy of imperialism, which is very, very strong and very damaging, not only in terms of the infrastructures and not only in terms of uh, the, the, the physical uh, remnants of the society, but the emotional remnants of the society, having been overrun, having been invaded, having been subservient to other powers. I mean, this, this, these have, this obviously has a very, very strong legacy, hence my comments before about uh, uh, being educated as to the horrors of, of, of colonialism through your book. Um, but the, and then there's also this sense of, well, our economy, our society needs to be fixed. There are all sorts of times uh, during your, uh, in your book where you point to these intellectual leaders, the politicians, the people on the ground saying, we have to reform our society, be they in China, be they in India, be they dying empires. There's this sense of listlessness. There's this sense in many cases of, well, we've had, we've had this empire which is going on for a long period of time. We've had the, the Qing empire is saying, well, we're, we, we need to make these reforms. We have this bureaucracy. We have this Confucius, eight, what, what is it, the eightfold way or whatever it is through the civil service. Well, we should really think about actually reforming that. Um, you, you have all sorts of examples of, of people that recognize, well, we have to compete economically. We have, to, we have to structure our societies in a different way. So you've got economic competition, you've got the legacy of imperialism, and then you've got this, this, this notion of modernity that, is, that we have to adapt to. And it seems to me at, at some level, those are three different things, or is that not right? Not different things. I think modernity arrives in large parts of the non-West, um, and not just Asia, Latin America to Africa to... Right, right. It arrives uh, under the auspices of imperialism. And for that reason, for, for in, in the minds of many people, it's tainted from the very beginning. Right. It arrives as exploitation. It arrives as, right. you know, basically self-sufficient food producers being forced to produce cash crops. Opium trade is a classic example sure. of that. You know, and suddenly you have an entire country being forced to um, consume opium because the trade deficits, um, actually quite like quite like recently, are so high that you need to sell something to China, yeah. as China is the one the one country that's selling everything to everyone else. So, if you see the logic of that, if you see the logic of capital, for instance, operating in these societies, you will see how it is very deeply bound with a worldview, an ideology, a philosophy. So modernity, which in a Western context or a European context, which we think of as a positive value, you know, our leaders today, for instance, even 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 last week, in fact, uh, the British Prime Minister was talking about modernization. Now, everyone understands that 
to be a positive thing here in this context. But one has to take on board the experiences of people who did not quite see modernization in that way, even though there were very obvious benefits to be had from it, obviously, you know, the, the discoveries some, of modern yeah. modern medicine, for some at least, right. uh, for, for many science, uh, you know, greater um, agricultural production, better, better seeds, better crops, all of that. Uh, but there were also a lot of losses. And so I think, you know, also happening, all of it happening uh, as a form of coercion, I think that, that also made it worse. Sure. Um, so modernity is a very problematic thing for many, many people around the world. But as you pointed out quite rightly, it was also problematic for people here. In the West, it was deeply problematic for large populations in North America, in Latin America, the people uh, who, who bore the brunt of it. Um, you had, uh, you know, some some sort of some some horrible forms of exploitation mm -hmm. in uh, North America and Latin America before, you know, these societies began to began to really enter modernity, as it were. Even then, you know, entire literature of uh, North America, late nineteenth centuries or or the early twentieth centuries, full of um, descriptions of that kind of exploitative capitalism, and indeed. European 19th century literature is full of that. And you have the romantic response to it. You have Ruskin. I mean, there are any number of uh, people mm -hmm. who were tested to this devastating quality of uh, modernization, of, right. of modernity in their own parts. So if it was destructive in a part of the world that already had so many advantages, that had already conquered so many mm -hmm. unexplored, unknown continents and had you know, harnessed the resources of those continents for their own economic growth. If that kind of suffering and distress could be felt by people within Europe, just within Western, just imagine right. its effect in, in, in parts of the world who had no continents to conquer. And that's still the case for people trying to modernize themselves, for people trying to catch up with the West in this, in this great race that was started in the 19th century. Large societies like India and China billion plus populations, um, but they're at a huge disadvantage. They don't really have, you know, continents to conquer, uh, commodities elsewhere to right. uh, to just have a monopoly over. They have to buy their way to their uh, commodities and they have to appease and mollify and, and bribe. Uh, and still, uh, it's not going to be enough. There are far too many people in those places. So I think this whole question of, um, what was modernization, was it a good or a bad thing? It really has to be seen in the context of imperialism. It cannot be separated from, from, these, from these larger questions of how was it originally felt? How did it actually arrive in these places? Right, so I guess, I guess, my, uh, I guess my confusion is that I see, it as, I see it obviously historically coupled. I mean, clearly it's historically coupled, but I see it as somehow a different thing. When I think of, uh, when I think today of your, your, your steel worker in Pittsburgh who's being told that his factory is going to close and there's going to, the jobs are going to go to China, right, which is, your, I guess, your standard American nightmare scenario, which is trotted out on a regular basis on CNN. There's a sense of the steel worker, and of course there are real steel workers who are, who are undergoing this, uh, feeling pain and anger that his job and his livelihood is... Uh, being uh, sacrificed on the altar of mo modernity for, for that particular individual. Now, in the overall scheme of things, one can say this is uh, this is a you know this is a minor 
this is a minor thing, this is a redistribution, this is this, this is that. But for that particular individual, of course, that's a very, that's a very strong sense of loss. And I guess my only point is that, that it's logically, it's just logically distinct. Now, I appreciate the fact that the effect of, uh, uh, of these things in China and in Asia and in uh, Korea and in many other places and in Nepal and in Tibet and whatever is, is much, much much stronger and is naturally tied to the legacy of imperialism, as you're saying. It is naturally tied to the entire way their economies had developed, which, which in itself was, was affected uh, incontrovertibly by, 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 uh, by imperialism. And yet, again, I'm trying to parse these things in my mind because I, what's driving me in my understanding is, what is there a real difference between people from the East broadly defined, and mm -hmm. we can talk about what that means, and people from the West. I guess that's really what's driving yep. me, is this sense of, okay, uh, on the one hand, we can be glib and say, well, no, we're all the same, it's all the human condition, we're all, everybody has the same needs and desires and so forth, and the only real distinction between Eastern people and Western people um, are what I would call accidents of history. Maybe mm -hmm. I wouldn't call it that, but one, one could call accidents of history. And of course, those accidents can have horrific consequences and can involve millions of people being displaced and so forth. But on some level, uh, that's really what we're talking about. And all the legacy of imperialism is really that. It's a historical set of circumstances mm -hmm. which was egregious and, 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 and you know, all, all the rest. But, um, or, no, there are entire regions of the world where people really do have different values. They really do think differently. They really do act differently. We can in some ways make connections and not just say this was a response to the West or this was a response to the fact that we felt uh, embarrassed or shamed. Or you, you know, you met, you had this wonderful quote in, in, uh, by, by Tagore, uh, Tagore? I don't know how Tagore. to pronounce it, Tagore, yeah. sorry. Um, where he says uh, that, that we all felt like defendants in the European court, this notion of, uh, and, and by we all, presumably there was a sense mm -hmm. of, of Asian universality to that, yeah. which, and so there, so that makes me wonder is, what is the, the, the aspect of commonality? Do you, do you see what I'm, what I'm, yeah, yeah, I, th I think, I think what you, what you're driving, if you have, if I brought you correctly, is, um, it's, a, it's a question about diversity, it's a question about difference. Are there real differences? Right. Um, is there a real diversity of outlooks, worldviews, right. um, ways of thinking, ways of feeling that can be clarified by these distinctions between East and West? Right. I would say no. And I think I would also add that one has to move beyond these uh, actually often very banal uh, dualisms because they don't, they, they, they obscure more, they clarify. I think you have to now look at the logic of particular ideas, you have to look at the logic of certain processes that were set into motion in the 19th century. So legacy of imperialism uh, is not just the backwardness or the perennial, perennial backwardness of large parts of Asia. The legacy, one of the legacies of imperialism is the rising economic strength of China today. Mm -hmm. The fact that uh, so much of the Chinese attempt at self-consolidation, at self-strengthening comes out of that particular history. And the fact that China is basically underwriting, has been underwriting the uh, American consumerist economy for mm -hmm. a very long time. That's also a legacy of imperialism. It's the fact that the East is now present in the West, the West has been present in the East for a very long time. That is also a legacy of imperialism. So if you want to isolate this, if you want to understand the situation, it won't help to look at it 
purely as an East versus West thing or China having its revenge on America. One has to look at this as part of a larger process of ideas that at one point in history originate from one part of the world, how they spread and how they transform entire societies, right. give them particular shape, you know, set them on particular historical trajectories. So that's really what we should be looking at rather than you know, posing these dualisms between East and the West, even the North versus the South, which has its uses. And all of these dualisms have their uses. You know, they can explain a few situations. I mean, how can you explain the late 19th century without talking about uh, how these people were responding to the West? Sure. You know, some of that dualism sure. has to be sure. invoked because these people are invoking it, obviously. Sure. Um, how can you talk about uh, you know, underdevelopment without talking about North and the South? in the 20th century, how these countries were systematically deindustrialized, and in the post-colonial phase, you know, really struggled to get back on their feet again and to reindustrialize themselves. And right. obviously, there were certain divisions that made it possible for many people at that time to uh, posit this North versus the South divide. Right. So all of these uh, dualisms, binaries, have their particular uh, uses, but I think you know, a, a more mature understanding of the world of the last um, 150 years really has to derive from an understanding of, you know, particular movements, particular processes of ideas, of, of systems, of state building programs, for instance, you know, the whole idea of the nation state, for right. instance. Right. You know, that could be the frame in which you could look at the organization of the world in the last 150 years. Right. Nation states are very modern things. They were, they exactly, were, they were as new. you said. I mean, this notion of the West being representative of these values, of course, the, these notions changed dramatically in the course of a few hundred years in what is now the West. I Absolutely. Mean, it, 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 the fact that, you know, as I describe in the book, Japan becomes an imperialist power, you know. So that's also one of the legacies of imperialism, that the West arrives in, 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 in the East, as it were, and the East turns itself into the West. You know, that is also an interesting right. irony, irony to ponder, one that Tagore, uh, of course, uh, sure. wrote about at, at great length. So it's really no longer useful to keep invoking these, these particular binaries. And I've, I've been opposed in, in various other writings I've done to this notion, you know, that the West was something very unique or the East is something very unique and they all developed in isolation from each other or stagnated in isolation from right. each other. This is all this is really a kind of triumphalist um, propaganda that you know people come up with on both sides to feel good about themselves, to give themselves you know some kind of uh, some kind of emotional, moral satisfaction, moral gratification. But uh, I don't think it's very useful when it comes to. Let me push you a little bit because there is this notion of very broadly defined, and so I'm, uh, for what it's worth, I'm in. Uh, very strong agreement with what you're saying. But again, maybe there are some differences, and I, wanna, I want you to clarify a little bit. So there is this notion broadly defined of the West, at least the West today, and as it's been for the last couple hundred years, post-Adam Smith or whatever it is, post-John Locke, wherever you want to draw the line, and say there's this, there's this triumphant view or, or the, a supreme view of individual rights and liberties, the sense of the individual as, as, as the ultimate as opposed to this notion of, uh, of, of a more community, communitarian... The property-owning individual. Well, the, right, yeah. the property-owning yeah. individual, as, as opposed to this. And so, when, 
some time ago, I remember uh, there would be people like Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore that would, that would evoke this notion of, well, this is an Asian value, and we do things differently from an economic perspective. There was this sense of looking after our community. There was, it's not just the rampaging rights of the individual. It's, it's, it's a much more communitarian view. Now, maybe there was some manipulation that was going on there. I'm sure there was. Maybe there was some sense of triumphalism that was going on there. I'm sure there was. But maybe there's also something to it at some level. Is there anything to it at all? Well, that instance of uh, various Asian strongmen, authoritarian figures invoking Asian values, I mean, that's you know, purely an instance of uh, a certain set of ideas being deployed uh, very instrumentally, very deviously, one might say, by various uh, you know, autocratic figures to justify their their authoritarian rule so, so nothing, one can one can one can safely um, dismiss no, those okay. particular invocations of asian values because they, they were very clearly you know people uh, seek just simply justifying vindicating their their authoritarian rule okay. um, through reference to these supposedly ancient values and saying confucian ideas of harmony or community are much much more important that's you know I think we should we should immediately um, sort of describe that as uh, a, an exercise in cynicism. Um, not, there's not much there um, in in terms of intellectual substance. Okay. But if you're thinking of are these societies, or let's take a specific society like uh, Japan, for instance, is there a different sense of the self there? Is there a particular idea of individuality? I think it's interesting. Uh, discovery when you start reading, say, Japanese novelists who are very distinctive. Mm -hmm. Some of them I name in my in my book; um, others I don't. But it's very clear that they have a very dis different idea of what constitutes individuality, of what constitutes the human self. That there is there they they have a notion which is more duty bound, which is more bound to the community at large. Mm -hmm. There are certain rituals, there are certain responsibilities, there are certain duties that really define the individual. Rather than the desires or motivations generated by the individual while remaining autonomous, while remaining independent of that particular society. Now this is one syndrome that you will see reflected in various degrees across many Asian societies, not just Asian societies, Latin America, tribal societies, I mean there's so much ethnography about this, sure. you know, Cloud, someone like Claude Levi-Strauss, um, a figure that I often quote, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, spent his entire life discovering particular structures of the savage mind, as he called them, um, in, in, in the ways, in the myriad ways in which pre-modern societies, older societies, prioritize certain values above others. Or, or subscribe to you know values, certain values, and completely rejected um, others, or that that we uh, supposedly modern people uphold. Right. Um, so I think there's always there's always been that difference now, which is not to say that within the West itself, these particular notions of the individual, these particular notions of a more communi communitarian society, for want of a better word, have not existed. In, the, in pockets, certainly. In pockets. The fact is, I mean, that, that's another useful way to look at it, is that, as Proust once said, everything that has been uh, that has been written about has been written about before. Everything that has been taught has been taught before. But since nobody listens, it's important to 
try <laughs> those <laughs> things all over again, think all those things over again. The fact that someone like uh, the Buddha or someone with his worldview, with his skeptical view of the individual, of his desires, of his autonomy, also exists in the West. If you look at the Western philosophical or polit political tradition, sure you'll come up with people who believed, who had ideas. I talk about them in my own book about the Buddha, who had ideas which were actually remarkably similar to those that the Buddha himself came up with. Yeah. Now the, the important thing is, because because of certain contingent contingencies, particular moments, certain ideas, certain traditions become more prominent, become the dominant tradition as it were. And modernity is one of those traditions in the West, which has suppressed so many other political, philosophical, literary traditions. So the fact is that those traditions, if you bring them in dialogue with uh, some of these Asian traditions or some of these Asian figures, you would find you know, a remarkable degree of similarity there. And let's not forget, someone like Gandhi, someone like Tagore, they were educated, their sensibilities were informed by the West. Western writers and sure. intellectuals sure. and thinkers. Sure. So in many ways they are also conducting a dialogue with the West. It's not just this modern West or this imperialist West, but this is the other West that is not dominant within the West itself, within the Western mainstream, but nevertheless exists. And this is what they're interested in talking to and having a dialogue with, in learning from. It's interesting you mentioned, just picking up on your notion of, of, of a dialogue and also your, your book on the Buddha. So, so I, I read this book and again I go in, so um, it's just an embarrassing conversation because I, I start off almost every comment with, you know, I was under this preconceived notion, and then I learned that I was completely wrong, or what little I knew was actually completely wrong. And so it was with the Buddha. So I picked up this book because I first read From the Ruins of Empire and said, oh, this guy Mishra has something to say about Buddhism. And then to suffering, well, that's all very well and good. I'd like to, like to end suffering, so why don't I pick up this book? Um, and, and my notion of Buddhism was you could not get more Eastern than that. Again, this sense of alienate. My, my, the, the little that I knew of Buddhism was I would associate with these you know, drugged out guys in California in an ashram somewhere that just wanted to drop out of life and, and it was all very mystical and it was all, there were elements of reincarnation and there were, and it was all just wacky stuff that went completely opposed to anything that uh, a rational, reasonable, pragmatic, serious individual would ever want to consider in his or her life from a Western perspective. That was my, uh, not doing myself perhaps, painting myself the best possible picture, but that was, uh, that was, I guess, briefly put my perspective. So I pick up this book and I start reading this thing, and I think, huh, first of all, uh, you of course do an extremely good job at, at comparing and contrasting some of the sayings and some of, some of the, the notions of Buddhist uh, philosophy with all sorts of Western thinkers throughout, throughout uh, history. You mentioned Nietzsche, you mentioned Dostoevsky, you mentioned Baudelaire, you mentioned, you mentioned all sorts of people at all sorts of different times and say these are the same sorts of ideas, which becomes very, very clear. But, but, but uh, okay, you could say, wow, this Mishra is a clever guy, he can compare and contrast various things. But the thing which really overwhelmed me was the sense of, of real pragmatism of this guy. He wasn't, if, if I didn't know any better, I would say here's somebody who, who has a, who's, who's a psychologist, who's interested in aspects of the human condition that we all share, namely this notion of suffering. How do we rid ourselves of suffering? How can we go about and live a reasonable life? 
How can we somehow become triumphant over our desires and over our questing and over our somewhat meaningless questing that, we, that every human being on the planet, I think, has had some association with, certainly if we have some modicum of, of socioeconomic power. Um, there's none of this business of, of weird, mystical, metaphysical, heaven and hell, this eschatological constructs, all the stuff that we would associate with Christianity and, 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 and Judaism and, 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 and other things, maybe Islam and so forth, but, but all, all this other metaphysical stuff, there's none of it. There's, there's even a passage somewhere, I think, so you'll have to correct me, but there's a passage where somebody asks him something about uh, some metaphysical question and he remains silent. And then they say afterwards, well, why did you remain silent? And it's like, well, I, just, I, can't, I don't, didn't want to say one or the other. I have nothing to say about this, so I'm saying nothing at all. I mean, there's this real sense of pragmatism about how one lives one's life. And, and again, I had a clear sense of, wow, this is, there's no real difference here. These are, there's some real important teachings that are appropriate for Western people, Eastern people, people people. Yeah, I've just got carried away, but, I, but that, that, it really struck me because the the um, I, I took courses in philosophy, and I just thought to myself, how is it possible that you can go through and get a degree in philosophy in in the West, and you still maybe I was a particularly bad student, which is I think <laughs> potentially true, but but nonetheless, you can you can come away from that whole experience with a sense. Uh, of this sort of flakiness of Eastern philosophy, you're not exposed to this at all. That mm. seems. That, that, well, you know, that's, that's one of the um, incompatibilities, one of these disparities that we talked about earlier, is that um, so much of the history of the world, so much of the history of philosophy is um, framed, was framed originally in uh, Western academia. And so whoever goes through that system and its extensions in various other parts of the world, you know, our entire university system, our all educational system is very much modeled upon the West, upon that of the West. So if you go through that system, you will come away really not knowing much about sort of non-Western traditions of political thought, moral philosophy, political philosophy. Um, and you would be inclined to have that perspective that you had on the um, hedonistic um, Californians, which is that, you know, this is all a waste of time, essentially. Mm. It's, an, it's an excuse for, for laziness and, right. and parasitism of, of, of some, some sort or other. But the fact is that you've had some incredibly sophisticated ideas, some very interesting, complicated notions about consciousness, about how the mind works, articulated two and a half centuries ago. Yeah. Uh, this comes as a revelation to most. I mean, now there are neuroscientists working on, you know, Buddhist uh, Buddhist thought and, and and making comparisons, and there's a you know very any number of very ambitious projects underway to examine the links between. The modern scientific discoveries um, about the mind and how the brain works in particular and what the Buddhists have been saying all, all along about the way the mind works. Um, but the fact is that we don't know about these things because certain traditions have been de-emphasized, certain traditions have been suppressed, certain traditions have been ignored. So, I mean, I if you were to ask me what is my role in all this, um, I see my role as well, primarily one of self-education. I have to educate myself in the first instance. I didn't know anything about the Buddha. I grew up in India. I was born there. This is also the country where the Buddha was born, where he spent most of his life. I didn't know anything about it. I described this in my book. Yeah. Um, so this was a discovery for me. This was an education for me. And then 
I have to make that um, discovery. I have to ask other people to share it because I think, you know, it might be interesting to 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 these other people as well. And so same impulse went into um, from the ruins of of empire. Again, uh, fascinating figures, but neglected, obscure. And it's high time that we look at what they were saying and how they saw the West at a particular time, how they saw their own societies, how they saw human human possibility in general. Um, so I think that's you know very much where the um, Buddha book came out from is look at this man 2,500 years ago describing confronting change in his own world, right. uh, very radical change right. uh, by the standards of that world, right. you know, close-knit, community-minded societies becoming urbanized, lots of people moving to larger cities, larger urban settlements that were coming into place uh, all across North India at that time, and new ideas of how the human self was to be described are coming into being. It's a time of intense religious, metaphysical speculation. And the Buddha emerges in this context of also wars, a lot of violence he sees in the society. So he's meditating on these problems. And um, he arrived at this, this notion that the human individual or, the, or, this, or, this, or this, this claim upon um, individuality and autonomy is actually very shaky. Mm. Uh, what is the individual? Uh, where, do, where do these desires come from? And do, do, do these desires really lead to fulfillment or just lead to more, more desires? desires yeah. um, so, you know, he starts with these kind of basic questions, but also there is a sense that the human being, and this is a sense that the Buddha shares with a lot of other religions and philosophies, that the human being is not by himself an admirable figure. Uh, he's someone to be extremely wary of um, that, you know, this, these older ideas, for instance, of Western humanism or Renaissance humanism or Enlightenment humanism, uh, if the Buddha were in dialogue with them, he would consider the ideas to be very dangerous. Mm. He would say that this, this exaltation of the human as a source of wisdom, as a source of reason, someone who can think rationally, who's capable of you know, a great deal of tolerance, by thinking rationally, there's something very bogus about these ideas. Mm. And so much of the history of the last 200 years yes. has borne that, that out. Yeah. What about you personally? And you mentioned this, of course, your motivations to write. But let's dig a little bit deeper than that. So um, you went to university at uh, Al, 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 Al Habit. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> Um, which, as you as you wrote, was uh, and as you just said, I think was was known as the Oxford of the East, at least for 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 some time. You mentioned how you were unfamiliar with many aspects of uh, uh, Asian intellectuals, uh, Buddhism, and so forth. Is is there a, is there an emotional? Do you fi do you find any sense of an emotional drain between internally? For, this sounds very pat and cliche, but. Uh, but perhaps you can try to abstract away the patness and the and the and the, and the triteness of what I'm saying in your as you respond. Um, you feel torn between uh, what it means to be Asian and what it means to be Western. You're you're you have a very strong roots in, in in the West, not only because you happen to live here, but as you've written about extensively, your primary intellectual influences, or at least 
many of your primary intellectual influences were clearly very, very Western. You're very well-versed, steeped in the Western tradition, and yet at the same time, you have very strong senses uh, of yeah, what it means to be yeah, I mean, I'm not exceptional in that regard, sort of any number of um, Indians, uh, Egyptian, Chinese, would be extremely well-versed in the Western tradition because, you know, that's what we are taught at school, that was, that's what we are told to really absorb if we want to get on in the modern world. So this is something you sort of grow up with um, if you, you know, if you are, if you belong to the right class, even if you're from the lower middle class, in fact, um, you have to do that, simply in order to get ahead. So it's not something that you choose to learn. Like for instance, if you were in the West and you will make, you'll have to make a conscious choice let's learn something about India, let's sure. learn something about it's not really necessary. It's not necessary to your well-being, to your chances of material success in the world. It is in India, and that's really a crucial difference here. So you grow up with the West as this thing you have to master, you have to learn about. Speaking the language, very important if you want to be you know, part of this world of um, material success. Even if you want to simply survive, I'm not just talking about wanting to become a millionaire, even if you want to get a poorly paid job somewhere, you have to learn the English language. So the West for us is not a, not a choice really, it's a, it's a compulsion learning about the West or mastering some of its um, historical, philosophical or literary traditions. Um, the other part is actually the more difficult part because in many, in many instances we experience an uprooting of sorts even though we physically live in Asia, live in different parts of Asia, we are actually quite disconnected from those traditions and instances, my not being aware of um, the history or the philosophy of Buddhism until very late in my life. Now, why was this? You know, I had spent so much, so much of my life actually physically very close to those areas where the right. Buddha was born and where he preached, where he moved, um, and yet I knew nothing about it. So much of you know, my, my, my sort of education in, in the last 10-15 years, which has been a kind of self-education, has really been in these uh, philosophical and literary traditions of Asia. So it's not that I feel torn, I mean, that, because that question assumes that the tradition of Asia or the traditions of India, for that matter, are something that I've already, I'm, I'm steeped in. I'm actually not. I know a lot more about the West at this point, about Western literature, about Western philosophy, than I do about large parts of the Asian tradition. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, the challenge, the stimulating thing is that there is so much to learn. There's so much to, to, to discover. And we've only really started discovering the histories and the philosophies and the literatures of a large part of the world. We, we, it's incredible how really West-centric we have been. And by West-centric, I don't blame that. I don't accuse only people in the West of being West-centric, but we in Asia have been deeply West-centric. Mm. And you know, very slowly we are beginning to emerge from this fixation, from this obsession, and beginning to learn to look at ourselves, to at, at our own societies, at our own traditions, and often, you know, those traditions have to be mediated often through Western philosophies or Western ideas. But, you know, 
this is this is how knowledge uh, proceeds, how knowledge develops. Or some Western researchers. I mean, you mentioned in the Buddhist book in the nineteenth century this sense of rediscovery of some of some of the the whole notions of of, of, of Buddhist philosophy through actually Western thinkers. And, absolutely. And, 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 absolutely. And some of the ironies that were exactly that were that were involved there. Exactly. So what is next up? On your agenda, says there's so much to learn, there's so many different areas to, to go in. I mean, one has to make choices. I, when I'm listening to you saying, well, there was no choice for us to be, to be steeped in the Western tradition because that was the only way forwards. We, couldn't, we didn't really have any particular opportunity economically or what have you, even to the extent of learning English and so forth. We, there, was a, there was an obligation there. I certainly appreciate that point. In some ways, it sidesteps really the question that I'm asking, which is, which is in some theoretical world, if you, if you didn't, if you weren't obliged to do that, would you have opted to do that? Would you have still opted if you could imagine living in some world where you you were you somehow removed from economic constraints, and you are uh, in some living in some ethereal land, and you have a choice of whether or not you're going to learn about, you're going to read your Nietzsche, you're going to read your Proust, you're going to read all the rest of this, or you're going to go off and you're going to just read something in in Swahili, or you're going to read something in Sanskrit, or you're going to read something else. It's, it's, it's a bit of a, it, it's an absurd thought experiment for all sorts of reasons, because it forces you to make all sorts of cultural distinctions and so forth. But I guess what I'm, what I'm, what I'm really trying to look at is trying to get a sense of where you resonate in terms of your particular values. So it's one thing to say, well, yes, I had to learn all these things. I had to read all these things, because that's what they were teaching at university, and that's what I had to do to get a job. And that was the, that, those were the expectations in the society where I was living. But it's another thing to say, these things actually intrinsically hold some value, and they're not just equivalent to any other particular society at any other particular time, and I had to pick those. See where I'm going with that? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, in that sense, it's been enormously enriching. So even if you know, there, was, uh, sort of, you know, there, there was a compulsion originally to learn about the West, uh, the fact that it has immensely enriched my life and it has made me possible to actually undertake the kind of journeys, the intellectual journeys I do now. Otherwise, I don't see how I would have even started to study, you know, whether various Indian traditions or something like Buddhism or uh, something like Chinese philosophy without that background, without that kind of training. So that's really important. Now, I think if you're asking me, is there a particular set of values um, that I subscribe to or uh, which are particular to any one part of the world, I would say no, actually, I can find them in various traditions, in various figures, in various thinkers, whether it's someone like Nietzsche, who I quote a great deal in the Buddha book, uh, sometimes to underline the astonishing similarities between what he was saying in the 19th century and what the Buddha was thinking about in uh, the, the 5th, 6th century BC, um, whether it's someone like Levi Strauss or someone like Simone Weil, who I don't quote so often, but she's been a huge influence on, on, on my thinking about, about various issues. She wrote very little. Quite a lot of these figures that I read and reread um, and, and keep doing it, and they're very important to me. Likewise, in the uh, traditions that I've only begun to discover, whether it's the the Chinese tradition, or whether more recently thinking about Indonesia, thinking about Java, thinking about its history. Again, I'm looking at sympathetic figures there. So um, what makes them sympathetic? I mean, again, if, if you were able to say, this is what particularly attracts me to, to Nietzsche or Simone Weil or... or, or, I, think, or I think maybe one thing that 
unites them all and which makes them very compelling figures for me is their sense of crisis. Their sense of a world in deep crisis, of a world in, in radical transition. And this is what they're attesting to. This is what they are really talking about. So I'm not attracted to people who are writing at a time of great prosperity and well-being. I'm not so keen on, for instance, the Renaissance philosophers, mm. you know, who, who are talking about statecraft and, and, and various sort of aesthetic theories are being formulated at that time. Not so keen on the Enlightenment philosophers. Those, they, they don't really speak to me. Um, there are certain Western philosophers who do speak to me because they are talking about a time, a world that resembles my own. If you grow up in a place like Allahabad, you mentioned that previously, what you're looking at, you're really surrounded by crisis, by breakdown, a continuous breakdown. And that's really been the experience for me of living in India, of growing up in India, being surrounded by crisis and a kind of modernity which is unachievable, which is unattainable, and a sense of having arrived late in history. You know, this is something that haunts us all, haunts many, many of us. In so it's missing, like, missing the boat somehow. Missing the boat and then being forced to adopt certain ways, certain methods. And even if you succeed in your own life, finding that other people around you are failing. And really what you see around you is an evidence of a massive, overwhelming failure all around you if you grow up in those parts. Even if you grow up in a you know, relatively large city like Delhi or, or Mumbai, that sense of crisis never really leaves you. And I think that is one difference I feel increasingly between people who grow up in places like Turkey or Egypt or India and people who have grown up in the West at a time of prosperity, right. at a time of great power for the West, where their assumptions are informed by their sense of national power, their sense of national strength, and the fact that their model of modernity is being imitated now, in what way and what are the consequences of that around the world, nobody knows. But nevertheless, a lot of people want to imitate that. They want to be, if not physically in America, they want to be Americans or they want to consume like Americans out there. That creates a certain kind of you know, worldview, certain set of assumptions, which inform a certain outlook and a worldview, which has its own integrity. Now, if you were born in India, if you were born in Turkey, um, in, 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 the, in the last century or so, you would have a very different sense of these processes. You would have really have a very strong sense of crisis if you lived in countries with a history of civil wars or coups or people fighting each other for state power or growing nationalisms or tribalisms, you know, growing, growing, growing malign and, 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 and sort of engaging in destructive wars. Um, you really have a very different sense of the world altogether. And that's, in that context, the people you will respond to, the people you will find sympathetic, are the people who also had that similar sense. And who can understand to some extent what you're going through. Absolutely. What, what, do you, what do you think, how do you react, how do you feel when you hear the words economic crisis being thrown around? I mean, if you listen to the media now, we're, we're in a state of crisis here in London, where we've been in a state of crisis for five years. What's your, the, uh, what's, what's your sense of, uh, of that? Do you... You have an urge to stand up and shout from the rooftops. You people have no idea what a crisis <laughs> is really all about. Um, or do you think somehow differently? I think, you know, crises are uh, good ways to re-examine many of our assumptions, uh, many of our belief systems that we've unconsciously 
unthinkingly embraced. And I think this crisis, uh, which is now a prolonged crisis, if you date it back to its beginnings back to 2008, right. it's been now going on for five years, no end in sight, no end in sight. Um, if this provokes new thinking, uh, new ideas or reflections on, you know, what does the history of Europe or the world have to teach us in the last 150 years or so? Are there ideas suppressed, embedded in these different genealogies of Europe or of America that we need to excavate, that we need to bring up to light again? We need to think about, I mean, basic questions like, what is the good life? And those questions are being asked. What right. is the nature so that was of the my life? next question. I mean, do you, do you yeah. actually see this happening? Do you, do you see a sense of, of people digging down and, and asking profound questions that have long been suppressed? I see them more than I did when, you know, say, seven, eight years ago, when uh, I toured the United States with my Buddha book and met Bimu's audiences everywhere. Mm. Um, you know, that was the time the stock market was booming, things were going well, uh, maybe the Iraq war was a bit of a disaster, but anyway, the economy was still doing great. There was certainly no sense of crisis. Um, now I find a very different kind of response altogether when I meet large audiences or when I meet, when I go out of my room and meet people. There's a different kind of questioning and this reflected any, you know, any, any number of intellectual trends or whether it's the return of Marxism or the invocation of Marx again as a as a very effective critic critic of capitalism, or whether it's people saying, "Oh, let's look at Bhutan. They've figured out a way to measure happiness." You know, maybe and, and be happy more. And and be happy. <laughs> whether we need to, you know, look at other ways of measuring the health of our societies. You know, it's not enough to just look at GDP growth or look at infant mortality rates or you know various other things. Maybe there are other measures. There are other indicators. Um, so. You know, in different ways, this this sort of churning now that you see um, that's that's being manifested in these thinking. Obviously, there's a lot more to come, and there should be because I, I really think we are at an impasse at this point. That we have really come to the end of a very long experiment, which was this experiment of modernity, and the idea that it could be universalized, mm. and that you know billions and billions of people would all have the same sort of lifestyle, would have the same kind of outlook, would have the same sort of worldview, and consume more or less in the same kind of way. Right. We've come to the end of that, simply because uh, there is this, this little nature of, uh, this little, little question of nature to be considered. Mm. The planet Earth has become a major critic of our uh, various ambitious, fanciful ideologies and histories and, 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 and ideas. Uh, it's telling us this can't go on. It just cannot go on. Um, and I think you know whatever whatever new ideas come out of this moment um, are to be welcomed because unless you have a crisis, you won't have had this moment of reckoning. Do you see any new ideas coming out? I mean, the the, the hope is that that a crisis will provoke alternative thinking. A crisis will force people to dig down deep. Uh, uh, you mentioned the crisis philosophers that, that you that you feel a particular resonance with. Have you, um, just as a, as a man on the street, I'm not particularly getting a sense that there there is a plethora of, uh, of new ideas or new options or new ways of thinking about it. You hear people saying things like, we have to look after the environment. We can't keep doing what we've already been doing. 
we can't keep relying upon some sort of combination of zero-sum economics and mercantilism and so forth. But economists would tell you, well, you don't, we've long been past that point anyway, so we shouldn't be thinking in those particular lines. But, but anyway, have you heard, have you heard a do you get a certain sense that there are new ideas, new ways of thinking, other than an acknowledgement of the crisis that, that's out there? Not at this point, no. And I think, if, especially if you're thinking of it from the perspective of a man on the street, reader of newspapers, for instance, you would not get that sense at all because you know these are highly conservative institutions whether it's the press or, or, or the, the legislator for that matter or the judiciary I mean if these are our thought leaders if these are our policy makers we have a long way to go um, before we can see any new thinking emerge or let alone that new thinking be yeah. put into action yeah. and, and, and turned into turned into a policy because uh, you know these institutions have all thrived on these older models unsustainable models, whether it's journalism, for instance, in the last 10-15 years. This is a matter for a separate discussion altogether, but look at how journalists have become. Choice. Journalists have become <laughs> part, of the, part of the elites. Right. This is an extraordinary phenomenon. We haven't even noticed it. How they have become the mouthpieces for businessmen, for politicians, whether it's, it's any number of examples, whether it's the New York Times or the major newspapers in, in the Western world, supporting the war in Iraq, right. whether it's them being asleep on their watch. There's not much objective while the critical economic... thinking whatsoever that's no, going on. No, no. If you look at if you look at the profiles of the backgrounds of some of the major journalists, commentators, observers, where are they spending most of their time? Who are they hanging out with? Who are the audiences they're addressing? They're all addressing each other. They're all talking to the elites, whether in Davos and Aspen. These, the these, self-proclaimed uh, elites. I mean, these, not the, even the, the intellectual elites, for that matter. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think what what we are looking at is circulation, rapid circulation of bad knowledge, of defective knowledge, in these circles, and it's very hard. It's very very hard for alternative forms of knowledge to get into those, into those circuits. Whether they should get into those circuits is another matter altogether. But that's how the world is structured. Why, why shouldn't they get into it? I don't understand. You well, had me convinced. You see, I was all, yes, they should. Well, the, the thing is, you know, you can't really tell a uh, corporate CEO, for instance, uh, at this point, who's thinking of, you know, setting up more factories in Indonesia, which is the, which is the next big lodestone for foreign investors in, in right. Asia. Uh, you can't tell them, look, uh, most of Sumatra has been devastated already by palm oil prospectors right. and, and, and so much of Java has been lost to right. you know, right. rampant um, industrialization, tree felling and so on. So please don't do this there. You can say it, but it's going to be a waste of time. But of course, that's not where it's going to come from. It's going to come from government regulation. It's going to come from international absolutely. bodies. It's going to come absolutely. from... Absolutely. And why would the government regulate? You look, in this con you look at this country, for instance. Um, you know, here is a country where the Chancellor of Exchequer actually is battling to you know, save basically the salaries of corporate executives that the EU is proposing should be cut. And he doesn't want them to be cut. Why? Because how will they get them? How will they get? How will they be funded? These right. people, if not by the city of London, the Tory government here. I don't think the Labour government will behave very differently in this regard. Right. So you, everywhere you look, you look at nexuses, you look at collusions, 
entrenched interests. Entrenched interests. So how will the government enforce, let alone, you know, uh, I mean, actually these, or bringing these regulations into place in the first place? Well, this gets to your point of, of, of the role of, at least in my mind, so I'm on a hobby horse here, but this, this, this gets to, to, to your point of the role of the media. I mean, the, the real role of the fifth estate is to come in and say, uh, is to give a global picture and say, look, we're not looking after these things. We're, 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 we're letting, we're dropping the ball. We have to make sure we have these society, uh, societal uh, safeguards in place. As you say, you can't expect the corporate CEO to act any differently than a corporate CEO would. You can't also expect a politician to act any differently than in, in his short-term or her short-term narrow interests, namely in order to protect the vested interest and be elected. But Absolutely. you can hopefully expect that, that the, the press will be able to be sufficiently vigorous and sufficiently objective to, to shed light on these particular issues and point some direction into the way, way that that goes. Absolutely, yeah. I've gotten off the track, but I'm having a lot of fun <laughs> talking to you about uh, all of this. Let, let, me, let me wrap it up with uh, my queasiness aspect, and I think you've, you've actually eliminated some of my queasiness. But I mentioned at the beginning one of my reactions to uh, from the ruins of empire was a certain sense of queasiness. And, and the queasiness was... Came out, of, came out of this sense of, gosh, horrible things had happened, far more horrible than I had really appreciated. Very, very clever people were aware of this and trying to address uh, wrongs, were trying to move forwards in a constructive way for the benefit of their citizenry and all sorts of different approaches, some of them more successful than others. Um, and this is all part of this, this legacy, this deep legacy of some of the some of the very short-sighted and, and, and often morally egregious activities that had been perpetuated by a small number of countries in a particular part of the world. And this, is, this was the, the causal result of all of that. Um, and now we fast forward into a world where we have China rising and India rising and all these sorts of things, again, that, 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 that cause, cause panic in the... Uh, in the West, certainly in America and some other places, the sense of these people are going to come and take our jobs. And, uh, and there's almost this, uh, put in the context of your book, you talk about a certain sense of, you mentioned the word Pyrrhic victory, right? There's this sense of, well, the, after all of this time, Asia has finally risen to the extent, at least economically, they're being taken seriously. They're being taken so seriously that they're being feared. And yet, uh, this may wind up... Uh, being extremely detrimental to all of us as the planet is being threatened and we can't have, we have to look for meaningful solutions for the entire planet. And so just the fact that, that, that China is now rising economically and exploiting more and more and more resources, we're in an unsustainable position. So my queasiness is linked to this notion of horrible things happened. Now rights are being uh, somehow, uh, wrongs are rather being somehow redressed. And one could say that it's payback time to some extent. But so what? What am I going to do about it? What is the world going to do about it? How can we move forwards in a constructive way? We may know that I, I now have a deeper understanding from reading your book of what has transpired in the past. I have a deeper understanding of, of the thinkers uh, who were trying to constructively move forwards, some of them more successfully than others. But now what do I do? And, and how can I with this knowledge somehow constructively use it to make the world a better place. Again, that's a bit trite, and that's, I realize that, um, that that's not your responsibility, but I'm talking to you, and you've obviously thought about these issues. So where do we go from here? Well, 
I'm not a I'm not a prophet. Right. Um, <laughs> um, I think as a writer, I feel my responsibility is to point people to particular aspects of our past which have not been written about, which have been ignored, which have been neglected, and to encourage them to explore those aspects much, much deeper than anything I've written or you know anything anyone can write at this point. Because various reasons, but I think the important thing is that all our histories, all whether you're in the West or in the East, are full of instant instances of journeys not taken, roads not taken, alternative modernities never really explored, whether, you know, how can we arrive at a political unit without embracing the nation state, all of us? Can there be an alternative to the nation state which doesn't cause as much suffering, say for ethnic minorities, or religious minorities? Now that's a question Europe also has to ask of itself. Sure. More often than it's doing. More often than it is doing these days. So all of these questions, the answers to them, um, at least some of those answers have to come from an exploration of our different histories, whether it's the history of Asia before the nation state, history of multi-ethnic empires, multi-religious empires, the Ottoman or the Qing. These are not all rosy histories to learn from. You know, one doesn't really learn from history in that kind of banal sure, way. Sure. But there are instances, there are interesting moments where you could say, ah, this was this was a this was a better model of coexistence than what we have come up with. So I think unless one has that sense of really, you know, this is how also people once lived upon this earth. And they were also violent, that they were also greedy, they were also very selfish, but they were they devise certain political economic mechanisms whereby those negative tendencies could be controlled, could be contained, the damage from them could be limited. Right. That is, I think, what you know. I, in my very modest way, am trying to do is to point to particular instances of, you know, or even or even people who talked about those particular instances and say, well, you know, we just can't stand here here in 2013 and say there is no alternative but to you know going Continue. down this right. this this sort of path of collective suicide and and destruction of the planet we can't just do that that would be kind of you know the worst kind of intellectual dishonesty because you know there have been people before us there have been human societies before us right. uh, centuries and centuries of them with their own ways of being with their own ways of living and with different insights with different different insights and you know this is this is what I think as a as a as a writer I can do is simply simply point to them. It can also, I would think, I would hope, it can also make people a little bit more tolerant of some reactions. Uh, so let me let me give you one thing that occurred to me as I was reading your book, and getting uh, a more perhaps consistent sense of. The horrors that, that, that a country like China was subjected to for a prolonged period of time. And I imagined having been steeped in that history myself, and I imagined having uh, been forced to swallow this, this uh, these, these couple of centuries worth of, of unmitigated aggression from all sides, you know, be it from standard Western imperialists and gunboat diplomacy and the opium wars to Japan to, you know, the, the whole shebang. 
and then having to listen to um, the, the, the standard sanctimonious American Secretary of State come and tell me uh, about human rights violations, for example. Now, one has to be very, very careful. Uh, I believe that, that, that there are human rights violations that, that happen in China, and I believe that they are indefensible, and I believe there are, there are uh, all sorts of... Uh, uh, I am not in any way saying, well, one, you, know, it's, it's, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, and that it's okay to do this as you're moving forward with the greatest economic experiment in the history of mankind and so forth. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. And at the same time, uh, or rather what I am saying, is that there has to be, I think, a greater understanding of... Uh, uh, of putting oneself in the other person's position and understanding when there is some patronizing count which is being thrown in your direction. And I can see myself, if I were considering, or rather, if I came from a position where I had been nothing less than subjugated for a couple of hundred years from all sorts of different parties, uh, and then just as I am now starting to, to, to become one of the greatest economies, if not the greatest economy on the planet, everybody is coming to me and saying, well, hang on, you're a bad person because you're doing this, that, and the other thing. Of course, I'm paraphrasing and trivializing and all the rest of that. I think there would be a certain bitter taste in my mouth and a certain degree of skepticism that I would meet those comments with. And again, without being an apologist at all yeah. for any of those things, I think that's, that's part and parcel of understanding what people on the other side of the fence, as it were, might be feeling. And I think books such as yours go a great deal, go a, go a great distance to try to give people at least a broader perspective and a broader understanding. And I think Absolutely. that's valuable as well. Well, I'm, I'm glad you say that because, you know, we commonly credit literature with the virtues of uh, empathy and understanding of putting the ability to put the reader in the place of a particular character sometimes a negative uh, a, a character with largely negative aspects. And yet there's a certain kind of understanding fostered if the novelist is a very skillful one of understanding why that person is so horrible or destructive or violent. Now, there's a kind of uh, account of world history that can be written and indeed is written, which can also put the reader in the perspective similar perspective of understanding how certain historical characters, how certain historical actors acted the way they did, which is not to condone their actions, sure. which is not to justify what they did by reference to some higher morality of national growth or right. national strength. or right. That's a false dichotomy. It's a, it's a false dichotomy, right. but simply to understand people right. what was acting upon them. So if Mao Zedong, a great monster in Western demonology, if what he was doing in the 1950s, making, trying to make China as hard as possible to catch up with the West, to industrialize China in double quick time, in the process, he committed some of the biggest calamities ever in the history of mankind, the Great Leap Forward, sure. and then the famine that flowed from it. Now, that was a great crime, but if you want to enlarge our understanding of how these crimes are committed, and what is the logic behind them, what was, what was weighing upon this man's mind, and indeed the minds of the people who were acting with him? He was not alone. He was not just a sole sure. autocrat. Then we have to understand what went before him. What were the particular pressures on this person at that time? And how did they produce such a ghastly result, greatly forward? You know, why did China become such a, such a sort of insular, 
country, such an insular and aggressive country, all through the 50s and 60s and 70s? And why then did it open up? And why does it still remain a prickly nationalistic country? Exactly. So I think even for this kind of uh, a very banal understanding of international relations, books of this kind, histories of these kinds are important. They give you a context. They, 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 they give you a context without, again, you know, divvying up the world in these camps of the East versus the West. Or but good just, and evil or just any of that good stuff. Evil, but just looking at how these right. processes work. And you can see the same process that work in Iran, the Shah of Iran right. modernizing brutally, then having a reaction against him in the form of the Islamic Revolution. You can see that in Turkey. You can see that in any number of countries across Asia. Same process that work. You know, the imperatives of national self-strengthening of national consolidation, meaning that an autocrat emerges, he, you know, basically suppresses all opposition and the opposition has a coup and then the whole cycle. There's this Kaczynski uh, quote. Kapuscinski, which, right. which is a brilliant, uh, brilliant, uh, brilliant quote um, from him about this whole sort of logic of, you know, post-colonial nation states. How did they commit so many blunders? And I think this is, you know, at one level what books like these that kind of understanding can advance um, is, you know, you simply learn what were the particular specific pressures upon individuals taking decisions, momentous decisions, what were their specific motivations at that particular time. Rather than sitting back and judging, oh, they're not like us. We have arrived at the summit of prosperity, of affluence, of you know, this glittering civilization dedicated to liberalism and human rights. And of understanding. Of understanding. And these people so below us, you know, so, 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 so lagging, so kind of, you know, deprived of uh, a simple understanding of what liberalism and human rights means and how can they do this. But, you know, I think one has to be very critical of countries like China, authoritarian societies in particular. But you have to understand that the crimes that they've committed against their own people increasingly, whether it's the Indians against the Kashmiris or the Northeastern or the tribal peoples, this is all obeying, this is all in obedience to this particular logic of competitive economies, of competitive nation states, of you know, competition really as, as, as a sort of basis of human existence which is the new idea that emerged in the last 200 years or so. And however difficult it is to move forwards coherently, it's going to be an awful lot more difficult if one doesn't have sufficient understanding to be able to understand the context in which these things were actually Absolutely. Done. Is there anything that, uh, that you'd like to say that you haven't had oh, a chance to say? No, actually, I think we covered quite yeah. a bit, actually. Yeah. Well, I think you did a great job. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Good questions. Thank you. Made me think. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About the History of Ideas, along with separate discussions with Stefan Collini, Martin Jay, Darren McMahon, and Quentin Skinner. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. 